Thank you very much for those, uh, those comments, because I was going to say thank you to you as a church for your engagement and support and involvement in various aspects of, of our mission. So yeah, it was great to go with, uh, with, with Paul to Poland. I think we owe a particular thanks to his wife uh, for releasing him during that time, judging from what I heard. <laughs> but anyway, thank you, Jude. Uh, yeah, also thank you for, for help we've had down in Watton as well. So you probably know that as a group of churches working across this part of the world, we're looking to plant churches, uh, ten, uh, ten, 10 more churches and then another 10 um, over the next 20 years. And so well, there's all kinds of things going on at the moment. And um, so I'm going to be in Watton this afternoon. I just wanted to share the encouragement with you. This week uh, we're running the sort of first Alpha course in Watton, and we heard that one of the, uh, the guests there gave her life to the Lord on the Alpha Course. So we praise God for the first fruits already that we're, we're seeing there as well. So thank you so much for your, your, uh, your help and your involvement. And it, it, You might at times be kind of thinking, well, look, we're a small group, you know, there's not hundreds of us gathered here or whatever, but genuinely you are playing your part, you're getting involved and getting stuck in. And that's just fantastic. You've got a heart to not only be involved in reaching your own local community, but our county and into the nations as well. And that is just a beautiful thing. So I want to encourage you. Don't lose that. Uh, don't get dis- allow anyone to discourage you out of that. So what I'm going to be speaking about this morning, I hope it doesn't sound too weird, but I'm going to be speaking mainly about spiritual geography. Now, I'm a geography teacher by a long time in the past background, Um, so I've got a lot of affection for geography, but today I'm wanting to talk about spiritual geography. You'll see what I mean. This isn't some weird new doctrine that I've come up with, okay? Uh, Well, you can tell me at the end if if you are feeling worried. Actually, it's really around God asking questions to us. So you'll see where we're going to go with this. Let's just pray. Lord, thank you so much for your awesome and amazing word that is such a, a, a lamp to our feet, a rock for us to walk on. Uh, Lord, it's nourishment on the journey. Lord, it's everything to us. We love your word. We're so grateful for it. And so as, as we spend a few moments looking at some things that maybe are really basic to us, but nevertheless important, I pray, Lord, that you will do us good. You'll enlighten our hearts, Lord. You'll nourish us, uh, and you'll reassure us about where we stand. Lord, we give you this time together now. Please just uh, immensely increase and expand everything that I could possibly say into heart, applying it into hearts directly so that lives will be changed in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So we're going to Genesis uh, and chapter 3. It's a tragic story, of course, the story of, of the fall. I probably don't need to uh, remind you too much of, of what happened there, but you will perhaps recall that... Um, Uh, after Adam and Eve have rebelled against God's instruction and sinned, given way to temptation. Well, let's pick up the story from verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? 
God asking a question. Now, it's great for us to come to God with our questions. I think God loves it when we come to him and say, Lord, I don't understand, I don't get this. Lord, why, what's going on? I think God can absolutely handle our questions, and that's fine. But I think we should pay more attention to God's questions to us than perhaps our questions to him. If God is asking a question that's been recorded in Scripture, there's a reason for it. And I think just a little bit of time reflecting on the significance of that this morning is going to do us some good. Do us some good. What lies behind? I mean, it's a simple question. Where are you? It's a sort of question, uh, just an everyday question. Where are you? Are you upstairs? Are you in the bathroom? Where are you? It's a simple, simple question. But what lies behind the question? God's questions are not simply trying to establish a fact or just to kind of quickly sort something out. God's questions are designed to engage with our hearts. God engages with humankind, and, and he asks these questions. And as we allow the question to kind of soak into us, it penetrates and it reveals things. You see, if we go back into verse 7, after they sinned, it says, Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves loincloths. And then in verse 10, this is Adam's answer to the Lord, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. God's question draws out from Adam what's going on here. The, the shame and the fear that is the consequence, the fruit of sin. Even the question draws out and exposes the childishness of trying to hide from God in a tree. I'm like, who made the tree? Do you honestly think, Adam, that hiding behind a tree, God won't work out where you are? Oh, he's like, oh, I came for a walk in the garden. They're not around. Oh, well, they must have gone on holiday. I'll come back next week. Honestly, did they really think that this was a strategy for dealing with the fact that they didn't want to have a chat with God? Was that really going to work? The question then reveals the human heart wrecked by sin, the sense of shame. That is part of the human experience. The sense of fear, man, over the last few years, the stuff that we've been through with COVID, the sense of fear that's come on us, it's part of the human condition, shame and fear. What about, though, rather than thinking only of our own hearts, what about the heart of God? Adam, where are you? In that question, there's a sense of intimacy, a divine yearning, even the pain of a father. The question, where are you, is a question that reveals that distance, separation, a gulf, a dislocation, a distortion, an alienation... All of that has been introduced into the human relationship to God. 
It wasn't there before, but it is there now. God's question, where are you, reveals stuff about us. It reveals things about the Lord. It's kind of diagnostic of our situation. I don't know whether you'd agree with me, but every generation, every culture kind of engages with or reveals this basic problem in its own way. That It's different. There's kind of human creativity which expresses it in ways that looks like it's new, but behind what's going on in the culture is always this sense of shame and fear and alienation. And so our generation, 2022, and particularly I'm thinking now of the young, younger ones that are coming up, this whole issue around identity has become such a massive big deal, this obsession with identity. But actually, the, this obsession with it, and, and the, frankly, the weird and crazy stuff that it seems to be doing, where people are coming to conclusions and believing things that are so self-evidently nonsensical, all of that, we can kind of think, well, that's ridiculous. Why are people thinking that? But there's actually something going on at a heart level behind it, which we need to remember. There is pain, and there is shame, and there is a hiding in the trees to try and cover it up. And so in 2022, the fig leaves that we are covering ourselves up with is identity. The trees that we are hiding behind is identity. It's no more effective at kind of dealing with the sense of alienation from God than Adam and Eve's strategy was. It's just the same thing manifest in a, in a, in a kind of contemporary way. It's the same thing. God comes and he asks a question. And of course, even in the midst of this, there is revelation taking place in God asking the question. The very fact that God says, where are you, is not telling us that God lost them and didn't know where to find them. I mean, like, seriously. No, it reveals the fact that God knows that there is a problem of separation. God knows it. In fact, God follows that question up with some more questions. Verse 11, who told you? Verse 11, have you eaten? Verse 13, what is this that you've done? God's questions come to them with the purpose of bringing revelation to understand what's happened as recorded for us so that we also can better understand. It strikes me that in this there are what we might call choices and voices. God's questions are uncomfortable to Adam and to Eve, in fact. And as you go on with the story, there's a lot of wriggling in their answers. It's almost funny if it were not so tragic as they try to blame anyone they can think of. You know, God, you gave me this woman. It's like, it was the snake. You know, it's, it's, it's all this kind of stuff going on. The answers are humorous yet tragic. But God's questions, whilst they are uncomfortable, whilst they are disturbing, they're ultimately merciful. 
Why? Because they are like a doctor doing a diagnosis. You can't cure the sickness until you've diagnosed what that sickness is. Otherwise, you'll use the wrong medication. So God's questions are good for us to listen to, even if they're uncomfortable and disturbing. As God asks us questions, I'd like to think that there's like a a kind of a resonating question coming to us today. God's saying to you and me, where are you? And maybe that question will have some particular applications to different ones of us at the moment. Where are you? Where are you at? But the question also teaches us to be discerning. Discerning about the voices that we listen to. Who told you? You see, the, the satanic voice in this serpent takes things that are half true and warps and twists them. And if we were to look at it in more detail, I think you know the, the kind of like the promise that uh, the serpent offers. Well, God knows that if you have that fruit, you'll become godlike. You'll become awesome. You'll become amazing. This story, I think, reveals to us a voice that continues to come generation after generation and asking or teasing, tempting, twisting, warping to seek to lead us astray. Let me just give you a couple of examples of ways that I see this. So there is um, a school somewhere in our county, and the school's motto is this, believe in yourself. Believe in yourself. What a wonderfully affirming statement to say to people, you can do it, you've got this, you can be like God. Oh, We've had that once before, haven't we? Self-determination, choosing the way that I'm going to do. I did it my way. Believe in yourself. It's in Genesis 3. The tragedy, of course, is that the reason that that is so appealing and the fact that it's a Church of England school that's chosen to make that its theological motto um, It's because there is a half-truth in there. Mankind made in the image of God, apple of God's eye, crown of creation, just a little lower than this heavenly being. Wow, human beings are amazing because they're made in the image of God. But look what happens. The moment you introduce the, the sinful bit, you cause a dislocation, a gulf, a breaking. You have all the catastrophe of Genesis 3 instead of the beauty of the original creator's plan. Believe in yourself. It, it resonates because we are so dignified, made in the image of God, and yet it's so wrong. You can be anything that you want to be, so we are told. So people are telling the next generation, you can be anything you want to. Wow. 
Genesis 3 teaches us then to be discerning about the voices that we listen to. Who are we going to listen to? We need to be more careful to listen to the voice of God, to understand who and what we are as human beings, but to understand that 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 identity in all of its glory only flows, only makes sense in relation to God. What the serpent seeks to do is to try and take that and promise an alternative route apart from relationship with God. Where are you? In relation to God, made in God's image, incredible. The joy of the whole earth is Zion. In relation to God. Separate from God, it's idolatry. It's monstrous. It's evil. So we need to be very, very discerning about the voices that we listen to. That's what we learn from this story. Discerning about the choices that we make. The question... The questions that God asks to us perhaps uh, is uh, is similar to what happens in the story of the prodigal son. In Luke 15 and verse 17, it says this, But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? There was a sense in which God, in that story, was speaking to the prodigal son, saying, where are you? Where are you, prodigal son? And there's a moment when in, the, in that kind of question, that mercy that comes from heaven in the form of questions, where are you? What's going on? Where are you? There's a mercy in that. And then there's a moment in that revelation where the person says, wow, in my father's house, why am I not there? Why am I here when I should be there? And then the mercy, there's repentance. And we know, you know the story. You know how that works out. The question, where, where are you? The question, where, points to salvation because it indicates a need and indicates God's initiative. There's a sense in which Adam and Eve are lost. Where are you? What do parents do when their child gets lost? They seek and search and they find them. I mean, we know the parable of the the good shepherd. There's a seeking and searching in the heart of God. We know the parable of the uh, prodigal son. There's a watching of the father and then they're running towards. Where are you, Adam and Eve? You're lost. I want you to be found. The story of the rest of the Bible is a sense, the story of God's pursuit of humanity in its lostness. God would not ask the question if there was not an intention to then come and to ensure that we become found. So this is about salvation. It's about our need. It's about God's initiative. There's even a human instinct. We recognize it all around us. People try to find a way to salvation. Why would you find a way to salvation? Why would you find a way if you're already where you need to be? The very question, where are you? The human spirit, even in its foolishness and rebelliousness, knows not where I want to be. Why else would you march halfway across Spain in the heat? Or why would you go to keep fit classes or go to self-improvement classes or do all the different things that human beings try to do if you knew you were already where you needed to be? The search, the seeking indicates a sense of I'm not where I need to be. Human beings understand the sense of pilgrimage. Even if they don't know how to put language to what that's all about... They just kind of get it. That makes sense. People do that. They're trying to find themselves. 
all kinds of efforts, all kinds of ways. All of this is, a, is an attempt to deal with the problem of our spiritual geography. We're lost. We're not where we need to be. And so thinking about this is just a really helpful th- thing to think about. Where am I right now in relation to God? Where am I right now? As, as we're sitting here in this room, where am I right now in relation to God? Well, in the, the New Testament, the Bible uh, uses for us two locations to try to help us to understand this where are we question better. So we're going to jump forward now to 1 Corinthians and chapter 15. So 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22. For as by a man came death, so by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So the New Testament brings like a kind of a helpful upgrade to the question of where are you and says actually, fundamentally, there are only two answers to that question, okay? It's good to know, I I don't know about you, but multiple choice questions always feel like you've got a better chance of working out how to get get it right. You know, writing an essay, multiple choice, I mean, at least you've got a 50-50 chance of getting it right. It's kind of simple in a sense. Here, the, the Bible says that the answer to where are you is you are either in one place or the other, And it says one of these geographical locations is in Adam. That's the first one. So, well, where is Adam then? If I'm in him, well, tell me where he is. Well, Adam here is where we've just been in Genesis chapter 3. Sin, rupturing and dislocating us from God ultimately leading to death. Where is Adam? He is being away from God. He is being in sin. It's spiritual death leading to ultimate death. That's one option. The alternative option is here what is described as being in Christ. Faith in Jesus Christ has the incredible spiritual power to renew, restore, recreate, make brand new relationship with life, with God. Where is Christ right now? He's not dead. He's alive. He's seated in heavenly places together with the Father. And in another place in Ephesians, the same writer, Paul, tells us, that those of us who are in Christ are seated together with him. So he is in relationship with God, near God, close to God, secure with God. And if we're in him, then so are we. It's kind of like metaphorical, symbolic, but because it's God stuff, it's a lot more solid than just being an idea. This is spiritually for real. This is the real deal. There are only two spiritual places to be. Your spiritual geography is either you're in Adam, and I'm just 
saying that's the wrong place where you don't want to be. That's the wrong answer. That's the, uh -uh, that's the red mark. You don't want that one. The alternative is to be in Christ. Now, what the Bible tells us is that as human beings born naturally into this world, we naturally find ourselves born in Adam. That means that sin, being dislocated from God and ultimately heading towards spiritual death, is the default setting. That's where everyone starts from. The mercy, the salvation, the redemption that God offers is to say that it's possible to change your spiritual geography. For you to say in answer to where are you, well, I was in Adam, but I'm not anymore. And the simple way to do that, it's so simple that we can actually think, well, it can't be that easy, can it? But the simple way is to trust ourselves, heart and soul, to Jesus, to trust in him. In Psalm 22, the psalmist writes these famous words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you probably know that on the cross, Jesus mouthed those very same words. If I can put it this way, Jesus is our substitute he gets lost for us, so as to speak, so that in him we can now be found. That's the spiritual geography. It's got everything to do with Jesus. The question, by the way, that God asked to Adam, it, I, I mean, I don't speak Hebrew, okay, but the books that can tell you what's going on there say it's spoken individually. It's not all of you lot, where are you? Or Adam and Eve, where are you? Plural. It's singular. It's addressed individually. Where are you? It's no good saying, you know, well, I'm part of a Christian family. Or, you know, my wife's doing great with God and I'm sort of connected to her in some way. No. This is about where are you personally in relation to God? Have you come out of the trees <laughs> to be found by the Father? Or are you hiding away? F Ephesians 2.6 then speaks of a migration. We like these geography words. From Adam to Christ. Death to life. Condemnation to assurance. Sin to righteousness. Flesh to spirit. What a change. This spiritual migration has already started by faith. And as I said, it's not just a concept. It's not a philosophy or an idea. This is for real. It's spiritual, which means you can't necessarily see with your eyes, though you can probably see the changes. But it's profoundly, solidly real and true. And the fact that it is spiritual now points to a final, total fulfillment of this when Jesus physically comes again to take all of those who are spiritually in him to be physically with him for all eternity. What a picture of migration. Like, like the picture of, of Israel coming out from Egypt and heading to the promised land. 
Even going through the water of the Red Sea and the water of the the River Jordan. Going through baptism to say physically, yeah, God is saving us. We're becoming a people. We're becoming a nation. We've got a new start. So where are you? Now, here's one of the things that can happen. You can forget temporarily who you are. It's possible to be in Christ but to kind of somehow forget and sort of go hiding in the trees thinking God might be cross with you. Friends, let me just say, you don't belong in the trees. You don't need to hide. Shame is not yours anymore. Jesus was on that cross just wearing a loincloth. He, he faced the shame on that tree for you. So you do not need to hide in the trees anymore. Shame and alienation And all of that stuff, he's dealt with it once and for all. And there are only two geographical places you can be, in Adam or in Christ. If you're in Christ, don't go running back to the trees, using that as a strategy to avoid God. Remember who you are. Remember where you are. If God were to come to you today saying, where are you? You should be able to answer that question straight away. I'm in Christ. I'm beloved I am free from sin. I'm clothed in robes of righteousness, not covering myself up with man-made fig leaves. Some of you know that um, I've recently uh, been to Egypt, and as I was preparing to go there, I read a guidebook. And this this bit um, attracted my attention. It was tips on how to blend in as a tourist. So here were the the tips. This is how to go to Egypt and for the Egyptians to not realize that you're not an Egyptian, okay? Here's the first one. Don't wear shorts, okay? So those are some of you are gone for already, but I came today properly prepared to deal with the issue. I could be an Egyptian here today for all you know, couldn't I? Here's the second one. Carry a local plastic bag. That's tricky when you first get there, but you need to buy something as quickly as possible. Third one, carry an Egyptian newspaper. Perfect. That's the way to be an Egyptian. <laughs> no. How, how daft that is. Do you, I, wore, I, I wore shorts. The person I was staying with, I said, is it okay for me to wear shorts? He said, well, Egypt, Egyptian men don't wear shorts, but hey, you're a tourist. He said, I'm not going to, but you're a tourist. So I just happily wore my shorts. We, honestly, friends, we do not need to try and find some kind of ways to cover up our identity or fit in in some way like that. It's as simple as this. Know who you are. Know where you are. You are in Christ. That is your identity. You don't, you don't come up with efforts to try to blend in wearing shorts or not wearing shorts or whatever it is. Let's know who we are. Let's know where we are. Now, very briefly, um, genuinely, I'm saying that. I know when preachers say that, you don't believe them, but I mean it seriously. If we were to just jump forward to Genesis 4, well, go back to Genesis, but move forward one chapter to Genesis 4, verse 9, there is another question that gets asked. In Genesis 4, verse 9, this is now the story of Cain and Abel, another tragic story. And... uh, I'm getting there. Let me read it to you. 
Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Another very simple question. You know, where's your brother? It's another question about spiritual geography, which tests and reveals our hearts. Where's your brother? Cain was a worker of the ground. Abel was a keeper of the sheep, verse 2 of chapter 4. He's a keeper. It's the same word that gets used now. I'm on my brother's keeper. Yeah? He, he keeps the sheep. Do I have to keep the keepers of the sheep? Am I a shepherd of the shepherd? His question, or sorry, his answer, in the form of a question, also reveals his heart. Here we have the picture now of the family of God, brothers in the family of God, in partnership, in fellowship. And yet this scene gets converted into a murder scene. In the New Testament, in 1 John 3, I haven't got time to read it now, but verses 14 to 18, the the writer there, John, is saying that if you understand your spiritual geography in relation to God... That will then manifest itself in your spiritual geography to the family of God. It will not, it cannot produce hatred. It will produce love. This question, where are you? And this question, where is your brother, is a heart question, but then it's a question which should rightly result in action. So I just want to ask the question to you guys today Are you in open relationships with one another? Or are you hiding away in the trees, so to speak, in relation to one another? Again, 1 John 2, verses 9 to 10 kind of speaks about that. I just wonder, are there any relationship issues that need dealing with? There's just no room for hatred or unforgiveness in the family of God, Colossians 3, 13. Where are you in relation to being part of the local church? or in your relationship with the leaders here, the elders? Where are you in terms of your relationship to the small group that perhaps uh, you're a part of? The the question is a heart one. How is my heart towards my brothers and sisters? But it then results in practical action, doesn't it? I make myself present, I attend, I get involved, I get along. And even, uh, I would dare to say, you know, where are you in relation to being part of, of, of our group of churches? And uh, in a sense, we answered that at the start. So I know as a group, you guys have got really uh, been getting so stuck in. I just, I just want to make the comment on that. In the, in the autumn, we've got our um, annual conference, which will be in November. I'm sure you'll hear more about that in due course. Don't think, oh, well, that's for them. That's that big group over there. Come and be a part of it. Come and hear what's going on. Come and play your part. Where is your brother? Well, your brothers and sisters are going to be there. Come, come and be a part of it. Come and be connected. We're hoping that we may get some of our friends from Czech Republic and Serbia over to be there, as well as people from across uh, the Norfolk, Suffolk area. So come, come and be a part of it. Make it a priority to come and be present there. Also, we've got opportunities coming up over the next year for these prayer events that we call Prayers of Many. There was one recently in Aylsham, and I know Paul was involved there. I think some of others of you were as well. We're going to be doing those once a term through the year. 
Come and pray. We're, we're a family who pray together. Please, can I urge you to make those evenings a priority? It's always hard to get out and pray. It's a battle, but it's a fight that's worth fighting for. So in uh, Genesis 4, the blood of Abel meant that Cain was driven off the cursed land, driven away. But the blood of Jesus reverses the curse. We're restored. We're given a mission, as it were, to work the land in mission and to keep the sheep in building local churches. What a metaphor for our mission. We now know where we are. We're in Christ. We know where are we. We're united in our relationship with him and therefore with one another. Family metaphor, absolutely crucial. The murderousness of sin now gives way to the love of the family of God. I think I'm going to hand back to uh, Paul, perhaps, for us to break bread. Let's, this is the family meal. This is an opportunity for us to nail again, remind ourselves, I'm in Christ. Do this in remembrance of me, he said. As we do it, say, yeah, I'm remembering you, Jesus. I'm, I'm remembering who I am. I'm in Christ. There was a curse of sin, but that curse has been reversed. Hallelujah. And now he's put me in family. I, I, I do want to encourage you. If you know that there's any issue, if there's anything that needs just putting straight this morning, just going to have a quiet word with someone after we're finished. Maybe just go and chat with them. Or maybe you'll just feel like, do you know, I know there's someone here just a little bit discouraged at the moment. Seek that person out and go and pray some encouragement over them. But I've, yeah, let me, let me hand back over now to you guys.